Please listen carefully. Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts, Cole Bennett and Scott Self. In the last episode, we played the first half of our interview with F. Lagarde Smith. This is the second half. Afterward, Cole and I will discuss the second half of that conversation. Since we decided to cut the interview into two episodes after we recorded, there wasn't a clear end to the first part of the interview or a clear start to the second. We're just going to pick up where we left off last time. So enjoy episode 20, the second half of our interview with F. Lagarde Smith. Lagarde, here's something I'm I'm hearing uh, from you, and I may be imposing something I, I've generally thought about you in the, in the past, but... Um, it sounds to me like you're describing two different things. One is the sense of law as a place where um, God's desire for order is somewhat manifest, like we, you know, we've created a sense of order using law code. But that is different from uh, God's desire for agape, which may be uh, that may be the role of persuasion as opposed to the the role of law code. Am I getting anywhere into uh, in, in between your ears when I? characterize it that way i'm not sure i i caught the question to be quite frank with you where do we see where do you see the difference between places where um law is necessary in order to in order to bring about god's will and places where persuasion is necessary in order to bring about god's will in other words um i I hear you making an argument that we need some order that law provides a sense of order and that this is natural. This is natural law, which is kind of God's law. That's one function. But the other function is something like where we persuade people um, uh, to be loving enough not to have abortions, right? We persuade people to, 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 to love God sufficiently to where they don't even need the law to establish the order. I think the dichotomy is a false premise in a way. That is never a dichotomy. We have laws as backstops, to conduct. Okay. But we always want to persuade people to do the right thing regardless of the law. So um, let's take drunk driving. Drunk driving is against the law. Um, and by the way, that is a that is legislating morality. It is. Uh, people say you can't legislate morality. Well, all all of criminal law is legislative morality. I'm sorry. It's sure. all legislative morality. I, I hear but, that, yeah. But we try to persuade uh, individuals not to drink and drive. There are all sorts of programs out there uh, trying to keep them from drinking and driving. Uh, That's persuasion. Uh, We're we're not saying we're not going to try to convince you, but if you do it, you're going to get caught and we're going to punish you. We're trying to persuade people, but this is the the wrong thing to do. It it has the potential for hurting people. So there's never a, a bright line between persuasion and codifying laws. You know, we, we, teach, we teach kids to love people, not to hate them. Well, in a way, that's persuading them not to commit murder, which is codified. Right. Uh, it's the carrot and the stick. We, in culture, we always have carrots and sticks. Carrot is the persuasion part. The stick is, if we, if we are unsuccessful with the carrot, you're going to get the stick. Let me jump into an example that I think might uh, <clears throat> complicate that a little bit, Lagarde, and I'm interested to hear what you would say. Maybe we're talking about perhaps the difference between positive and negative 
uh, codification. Uh, regarding regarding the the subject of health care, um, I often hear and get into arguments with people who say, you know, if you are supposed to be a Christian and you care about your neighbor, then you need to vote for single-payer health care. And I heard President Obama at the time. obviously never lived in England. Okay, well, yes. So, one moment. And so, <laughs> All they got to do I, is live in England. They won't ask that question. <laughs> well, and, I, and they're, all, heard, they're all Christians in England. <laughs> they have to be, as by virtue of the state religion, right? Exactly. Uh, but when Obama was putting forth his uh, Obamacare, he, I was listening to a speech he was making where he said, after all, we are our brother's keeper which is an appeal to Hebraic law. And so I, I was seeing this mixing in of because you are a Christian and ought to care for people, let's codify this instead of relying on persuasion to help people who have outstanding medical bills, to convince people they need to prioritize health insurance over other expenditures, uh, or maybe even to lobby private insurance uh, to rethink their claim, their position on existing health health issues um instead of that it was let's codify it and if you are against that then a you're not a true christian or b you don't understand your own arguments that's that's kind of what i heard in the public square can you comment on that uh, yeah i can say that you take any issue health issue or anything else if it runs counter to a position that is held by one person and you happen to be a christian uh, then they will use your Christian faith as a sledgehammer to come down on you. Uh, they used it with Jesus. Uh, they used it with the prophets and so forth. That um, how could you take this position and be loving? Um, mm -hmm. Well, how can you be loving and force people to do something they don't want to do? <laughs> I mean, you that's turn Cole's that question. <laughs> you know, right. uh, you know, forcing people to uh, give up their position and yada, 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 is just as unloving as anything else. The hypocrisy of using scripture, uh, you know, to justify uh, homosexual behavior and so forth has been done recently. You know, if you're, you know, if you're a Christian, then you've got to be loving and give justice to everybody. And, and if they want to be uh, involved in homosexual activity, that's fine, et cetera, et cetera. And by the way, we could go off for a long time on that one as well with regard to uh, a good illustration of where law and morality interface and where should we draw the line uh, in that regard. Uh, I, I want to get in something that I, I think might be helpful to the libertarian uh, liberal uh, stance that you two guys have, maybe. Um, in a secular culture, uh, law replaces morals. Um, and uh, so to that extent, maybe... Uh, we as Christians need to be more involved in uh, formulating law. Um, or, to your point, Scott, and maybe to both of your points, or maybe we should be more dedicated to changing the culture so that it's no longer secular. And we do that through the gospel, uh, which would eliminate the need for hyper-regulation that, that comes <laughs> from uh, the uh, replacement of, of uh, morals with, with law. Uh, another thing I want us to remember is my kingdom is not of this world, Jesus said. My kingdom is not of this world. Not to say that we're not involved in the world, but that's not the, sole, that's not the primary purpose of the kingdom. 
to formulate rules and regulations. The primary purpose of the kingdom is to persuade. No question about that. And another distinction is between the church and individuals. The church, as the church, has a mission that uh, is to evangelize and save souls. But as Christians, uh, we are to be salt and light within our community and to uphold standards of right and wrong and and good morality. So uh, I have a... I have a split personality. I'm, I have a God-given schizophrenia that, that he wants me to have. But if I am in a position to, gifted to, uh, to whatever extent that I may have the opportunity to, I need to be persuading my fellow man to do the right thing morally, according to natural law, if nothing else. Libertarian right. philosophy works well if we have a moral society. But in an amoral society, liberty becomes license. It always does. In an amoral society, liberty becomes license, which by some irony then must replace non-intrusive morality with intrusive hyper-regulation and virtue signaling by those who have no idea of true virtue. That's a mouthful, but I, I think I would take issue with a uh, libertarian society without morals becomes hyper-regulatory or hyper-codified. I think it becomes lesser where you say you can do anything you want legally as long as you don't harm another person with harm construed narrowly. So there are very few laws in a true libertarian libertarian society, and courts adjudicate according to closely held narrow views of harm rather than exponentially increasing codes and laws. Yeah, but what's going to happen is eventually we're going to come up with a new law code because, am I right? This is where you're going is that we're going to, we're going to, if that's true, and if we end up with um, a deregulated society, uh, we will need to, as a people, find a way to establish regulation and start re-regulating in order to, in order to and mitigate it will that, always be greater regulation than there ever was under a purely moral society. It will always be that. Look at communism. Communism throws moral law out, as it were. I mean, it has the basic "don't kill, don't steal." But once it once it turns secular, and all of Western Europe is this way, Britain is this way. Trust me, I live over there. They've gotten rid of God, and when they get rid of God, the only there's a vacuum that has to be filled. And, you know, ideally, all we need are two rules, love God and love fellow man. That's all we need, two rules, love God. And, I mean, Jesus himself basically says that. But when you, when you are in a materialist, especially Darwinist culture that says we don't need God to have actually even been here to be who we are, God is not in that equation, then God has just been jettisoned as surplus to need, and that leads to moral anarchy going back to that word, at best, which is unpredictably subjective, and at worst, more tyrannical than the most authoritative of governments. There's this great quote from Grant Gilmore back in 1974 at the Yale uh, University Lecture on the Age of Anxiety. And you'll love this as a libertarian, but you've got to be careful. Hmm. The better the society, the less law there will be. The worse the society the more law there will be. In heaven, there will be no law. 
and the lion will lie down with the lamb. In hell, there will be nothing but law, and due process will be meticulously observed. I, I could be a libertarian all day long if, if we had a moral culture that was good without the law. But even God gave us law knowing we need law. But the good news is, the better we are as a people, the less law we actually do need. And there's the irony that the, the worse we are as a culture, the more godless we are as a culture, the more regulations we're going to face. Every culture that has gone down the path of hyper-regulation is a culture that has given up on God. Can you be good without God? You know, that's, that's kind of the question. And the answer is, no, you have to be regulated without God. Well, I, I take your point, and I, I think my response would be this in order to help me understand your point a little bit better. My argument on this show and to Scott on a daily basis has always been um, the only system of government that allows me to maximize my role as a Christian is a libertarian system that l- – causes people to leave me alone, causes the law to leave me alone so that I can be about the business of persuading people towards the very heaven that you're describing. And laws that continually uh, thump me and take my resources away from me and try to uh, oh, to subsidize and hold up and continue building governmental structures, all they do is get in my way. So I am crippled in that way. Uh, in my role as being a Christian, I, it's not impossible, but it's it's more and more difficult. So that's A. And B, I think what you're saying is exactly true about we don't need laws when we are – we need many fewer laws the more moral we become. And I think that's true of the church. We don't have a set of rules that govern our attendance and our participation in church because we're all in this voluntarily and together. But to me, there's a huge separation between our behavior and our law need for laws in the church versus um, such laws outside the church. So I, it strikes me that you're talking about two different populations. Historically, let's go back to the beginning of our country. Okay. In the beginning of our country, there was very little regulation. Very little regulation. And, and people were in tune with God's laws. As I say, they had established churches, and when they disestablished them, they still had a relationship between faith and state. And people had a moral code. I mean, they weren't perfect back then, um, but they were in tune with a creator by whom we had inalienable rights. I mean, they talked about the creator, the source. But once we have moved away from the creator, and we don't need a creator anymore, and once we've moved away from God and we don't need churches anymore, you know, we, we now have a culture that, that is regulating you and Scott and me and everybody else in total madness. And so I am a libertarian in that sense. I want to go back and eliminate as many laws as possible that are in my face moment by moment in our culture. I want a simple government as well. So I'm libertarian in that respect. So but, this is what with Scott being a liberal. Now here's the problem with the liberals. Let me let me bounce yeah, this on. Yeah, let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah. So so the liberals in in effect think they can be good without God. 
most liberals today, political liberals, most political liberals are not your basic church-going, Bible-reading, praying people. Uh, the Democrats seem to be quite proud of that fact, as a matter of fact. Uh, and so what you will see with, and it's, it's, it's not true this starkly between uh, Democrats and Republicans, because, you know, a curse on both of them. But, uh, <laughs> but if, 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 you, if you had the, the, I don't know how to put it, there, a typical Democrat and a typical Republican, they're not arguing over politics. They're arguing over worldview. They have, they have different worldviews. But the worldview of most political liberals or progressives or whatever, and that tends to equate with, with Democrats, but not necessarily. But in any event, if you, can, if you can paint with the broadest possible brush, without being unfair, those on the left who would say of themselves that they're liberals, they are coming at government from a basis that is not wedded to derived from moral law. And it's because of that that they tend to be most in favor of big government regulation rules that get in our face. At the same time, they're, they're talking this, all this stuff about even scripture, but talking about uh, concern for the individual and concern for the poor and the underserved and all of that. They, they have the right rhetoric. Conservatives tend to see big picture things. They, they see the big, 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 big picture, true conservatives. And they say, you know, it, it looks bad. Maybe you have a, a bad case here and a bad case there. But as we say in law, hard cases make bad law. Whereas the more liberal people seem to be, appear to be more sympathetic and understanding and caring. Um, but what they try to, what, what, what they do to solve problems is not really in the interest overall. And so we get caught up in, in, you know, what should we do from a Christian standpoint, uh, a faith standpoint? There's, there's no simple answers to this thing. If what I'm trying to show you, I think is how complicated the whole thing is and that, that conservatives and liberals want to do the right thing. I think. I think they both want to do the right thing. Libertarians want to do the right thing. Regulators want to do the right thing. We're all wanting to do the right thing. But what are we basing it on? This is why um, I suggested that we talk a little bit about the cultural church, which you wrote uh, way back in, or was published in 1992. I don't know when you wrote it. This is a long time ago. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying you're old, Lagarde, but that's a long time ago. Yeah, At, you're saying I'm old. <laughs> he wrote it when he was 10. Here's my, my I, I think, the, the place where we need to kind of pull this into focus. As I read the cultural church, I don't actually see the main argument being an argument about old and new hermeneutic, although that's the context. I see a criticism uh, that underpins that work, which suggests that churches have largely allowed culture to define, uh, in, at, at least up, up at the point that you wrote the book, had allowed culture to define what our priorities are, 
what our interpretations are, how we, how we approach scripture, how we approach our faith. We've allowed culture to define that for us rather than turning around to culture and providing it with the leadership that um, those of us who belong to the way have access to, uh, you know, to an understanding of who God is, an understanding of his relationship with us and his desire for the world and his desire to reconcile the world unto himself. Uh, that was back in 1992. Have we done any better? Or are we in the same position where the church is largely allowing culture to define who we are instead of influencing culture to the reconciliation of God? Well, there's no question about it. There's no question about it. Culture has affected the church more than the church has affected culture. It's, I mean, there's just no question about that. And, and here is the uh, poster child for that uh, observation. It, it's the gay rights movement. Um, you look in scripture, and it's just way too clear that homosexual behavior is not acceptable to God and shouldn't be ex- acceptable to, to us. And, and not to the exclusion of fornication or um, that which homo- uh, heterosexuals engage in. Uh, and we, we tend to forget all that, of course. But culture has decided, another book I wrote, Sodom's Second Coming, uh, culture has decided that homosexual behavior is a good thing. Culture has decided that it's wrong to be judgmental. Uh, so we can't judge anybody for any kind of conduct anymore. Um, and so what we do when we start to look at Scripture is we... We find a hermeneutic that allows us to reach the conclusion that we want to reach ourselves and the culture would approve of. Uh, the command example and necessary inference that the churches of Christ were using was never perfect because you could have people in the church of Christ using the exact same hermeneutic, taking the, the, the lens through which you look at Scripture, taking that to Scripture and coming up with two different conclusions. You, you could do that mm-hmm. using the same hermeneutic. It was never perfect. But at least it recognized a source of authority there that you were trying to get at. Whereas any other hermeneutic that is like sort of, well, Scripture is narrative, let's just get the meaning of the story, etc. Really dethrones God and his word and says, uh, we'll we'll make it up ourselves. Went to a play the other night at Steve Martin, of all people. Have you heard of his musical, uh, Bright Star? Uh, Really? No. Really good musical, but in it, there's this religious guy who's always carrying around a Bible, wherever he is, whatever the scene is, he's carrying around this Bible, he's a Bible thumper, and he's always quoting scripture. And then someone observes about him, he's searching scripture to justify his actions, but the Bible is not obliging. (laughs) Is that a great line? But that's where we are in terms of culture. Culture has become subjective, not objective. The, the the hermeneutic, the old hermeneutic at least was an attempt to be objective. Um, and the same thing with regard to the Supreme Court and the way it looked at uh, the original language. The, the big battle there uh, over Kavanaugh had nothing to do with his sexual situation. It had everything to do with the elephant in the room, which was, how are you going to interpret the Constitution by the words of the original uh, framers or by whatever we want to come to it and bring whatever outcome we want to get from it. 
as a former preacher, I have to confess that there is no question that there is a pull towards increasing relevance and you feel responsible to be culturally relevant. You, you feel a responsibility to reflect uh, cultural influences as much as, as, as much as possible. And, and, and there are some, I think, who try to negotiate the relationship between that and, and what they read in scripture. I, I, I think, the gospel itself is, unless you embrace, I, I guess I'm saying, unless you choose to embrace that the gospel itself is countercultural, that loving my neighbor in the ways that the Samaritan loves uh, the um, the man on the side of the road is is fundamentally countercultural. That choosing not to lust, or choosing to not be angry with my brother. Or choosing to allow my yes to be yes and my no to be no is fundamentally countercultural. Until until we reached an an acceptance that being a member of the way is it is completely countercultural, I don't know that we'll ever be able to reconcile that problem. The relationship that we have with uh, culture is not unlike the uneasy relationships we sometimes have in marriage or families or whatever. I and mean, we have to negotiate our way through. That's a, lots that's of a fair. Yeah. Uh, lots of competing pulls and tensions. Uh, and we're never going to be quite sure that we've got it right. And we probably will never get it quite right. Uh, but we're called to be uh, lots of things in lots of different situations to act uh, you know, to have Timothy circumcised, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. When, when, you know, you just made the argument, circumcision doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, of all men, we are most pitiful because yeah. we're trying to, to square the circle daily, hourly. Um, you know, where does our faith fit into all this? Uh, and it's just uneasy. So I think, I think the fact that you two guys are sitting there, you're opening three little, silliness things there uh, um, <laughs> is, is that naturally going to be tensions arising out of you know what is core and solid and, and the other thing I, I would leave you with um, is that sometimes it's not a matter of what's right and what's wrong but the what's better what's better um, and we forget that there's sometimes there's things that are just better yeah. And uh, that's, that's what we ought to strive toward. That is a good word of the day. It is. Well, part D. Yes. This is the second time we've done a thing in two parts. We did that early on in the podcast. I don't know if you remember. I don't remember. Jesus needs your cash part D. Oh, that's right. Because um, I sounded like an idiot when I, <laughs> I sounded like a bad guy. You did not sound like a bad You never, you over worry. Uh, okay. I know, I know it was a little bit of a harsh start back into the conversation at the beginning, but um, the place where I kind of cut this into two uh, didn't only have to do with time. It also had to do with a change in the conversation away from uh, the conversation of natural law and more to the function of law and the, and the interaction between law and morality, which is, by the way, uh, one of uh, Lagarde's areas of expertise in terms of uh, uh, in terms of legal scholarship. Mm-hmm. So uh, I want to 
I want to again uh, note my appreciation that he shared that with us. And I also, um, at least for myself, have to um, confess that I'm, I'm talking in pools in which I have not read deeply, uh, which is a dangerous place to be. <laughs> Uh, at least when it comes to the law, I mean, I th- when it comes to the discussions of ethics and 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 conversations of morality, I feel a little bit better on that side. But how they get codified and what the re- relationship is between morality and law uh, is a is a bigger challenge for me, especially when you get extra biblical. Then I'm, I really start slipping. But um, okay, so uh, Lagarde is making the argument that law is a secular stand-in for morality. That if Christians, for example, did a better job of persuading the people around them, uh, their neighbors and their community, to understanding the, uh, the deep will of God, they could experience freedom from regulation because we would regulate ourselves. We'd be self-regulating. Um, since fascinating that there's actually my dissertation was about to some degree self-regulation and self-determin- self-determination and that is a part of things whether you want the um, whether you want somebody externally to define uh, what your oughts and actions are or whether you choose to define those internally and act upon them internally that becomes an important an important part of the conversation and self-determination theory, at least through Desi and Ryan, is asking a question about how is that, how is that process, uh, what is that process, and how is it, how do we develop intrinsic motivation? But uh, so I, so that paradigm is interesting to me. I'm, um, I'm interested to know whether you, well, let me make the claim. I think that's Pollyannish. Okay, so let me respond. Okay, you are commenting on the claim that he made, which is if a society can just become more moral, they will need fewer laws. Well, I think he's making the opposite argument, that the reason we have so many laws is because society has become less moral. Yes. Okay. And that assumes that yeah, then— Yeah, I, the, I think the corollary would be what— yeah. Okay, all right. So my—it's not that I disagree with that, actually. It's that I think it does not discuss the division that is necessary to understand it fully. Okay. So think about Jesus talking uh, at the Sermon on the Mount. The statements he was making, you've heard it said law, mm-hmm. and I'm telling you morality. Mm-hmm. Don't just not murder people, but don't hate. Don't just commit adultery. Don't lust. If a guy hits you in the face, don't go find a policeman and say, what is the statute that I can now uh, bring against this guy, but turn the other cheek. If a guy demands your coat for a mile, give it to him, walk two miles, all these things. And I think in Jesus' life, you can see him trying to get his audience to diminish their respect for the need of laws and turn to a far more, uh, turn to a higher code, a higher moral plane in the way they think about treating each other. And so think about if um, if hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people who were Christians all decided to live in one state of the United States mm-hmm. and they all wanted to live together, <clears throat> I could see I could see Lagarde's point not being Pollyannish, saying in this state, 
given that everyone who lives here is a Christian, we're going to we're going to have far far less need for laws because we have this code that we live by as Christians. But I think that Lagarde needs to, and we need to make the point that people who have no interest in Christianity, they still have the need for laws because they're not interested in moral codes, especially the ones of Christianity. Now, there are moral codes outside of Christianity, but I, but I think in so much as Christians try to grasp a high moral code that we can read about from, mm. from the Bible, um, the more we embrace that, the less we do need laws when we are living in, a, in community with each other. The, the fact that we live in communities with other non-Christians means that laws are necessary until that time comes. I think that's what Lagarde's point was. Yeah, okay, so um, some, of the, some of the starkest criticisms I've heard of um, – the effort to democratize the Middle East back in the early part of the 2000s. Yeah. Some of the strongest um, criticisms of that that I heard were from Christian conservatives who said there is no way to do this unless people adopt Christianity. Christianity is fundamental to the experience of liberty and the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. No, but I mean, let's let's take a historical view of it. We have probably done a better job of creating as much liberty as any society in history. We who? America. Okay. Um, I mean, if you go back again, this is this is we're characterizing a time. But if you look at the first hundred years of our existence, pre-industrial. America is probably closest to your ideal of a libertarian society as ever. Okay. Don't you think? Yes, but are you saying because it was based that's in— the, That's their argument. That's the argument. Hey, look, it was also a Christian nation. No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not affirming that Correct. these things are true. I'm, I'm affirming the argument. I'm, I'm yeah. making the argument, right? It was a Christian nation. And so um, you take—you you, you juxtapose that against a place like— um, secular communism, where everything is codified, right? Everything has to be codified, and it has to be codified because you cannot expect your neighbor to be honest. That's the argument. You can't expect honesty. You can't expect goodness, generosity, and because you can't expect these things in the absence of um, a divine moral code, God's moral code, because you can't expect those things, they have to be regulated. And now, I, I, I think my understanding of your point of view is a free market and the laws of natural consequences necessary if you leave people to those laws of natural consequences become governing in and of themselves, that they provide regulation. If I overextend myself, I might uh, financially, I might suffer the consequences, but that would, if I suffered the consequences, I would learn from that experience and choose not to make um, overextending decisions in the future. Right. Hopefully, and Hopefully. if I didn't learn, there would be people around, and there are people who would say, I'm going to mentor you because I like you, and you keep opening businesses and failing, and I'm going to show you how to open a business sure. well or whatever. And that, I don't think that depends on Christianity. I, this, is the, this is the argument you and I grew up in, and I, I am familiar with the idea that we celebrate God in this nation through Christ. We celebrate God, and 
insofar as we have done this, things have gone well for us. I was at a funeral on Sunday of a dear friend uh, who had served in the military, had served in uh, served the, the military industrial complex during his career, and um, uh, and was just the most wonderful Christian man ever, and also a real patriot. And the last song we sang at his funeral was God Bless America. And I sang it at the top of my heart because that's what he believed, that's what Leo believed in. So I'm, I'm, I'm there to remember my friend. But, um, but it is interesting. That is a point of view that this is a place that if we do what God has asked us to do, we will be blessed as a nation, blessed with liberty. That's, I think that's poly- the argument. That's not your argument, right? No. Oh, I'm just making no, sure our yeah. listeners understand you are still delineating an argument. You, you know, I don't want to yada, yada, yada slavery. That was a thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a mortal sin. It's not just, oh, yeah, well, we did some things wrong. No, this is fundament, a fundamental wrong. And it illustrates to me the ways in which we are so good as a people at figuring out um, this group of people have no rights. And we'll make sure that we even codify that into law so that we treat them as property and exchange them as pop- property. And I, I think we have all kinds of blind sides. And there are points, I think, where we, um, we fail to recognize our own our own participation in this morass of human experience. Who is our our own Christians? Christians. Yeah. We've failed to really reconcile. I think we failed and in the time to reconcile our uh, participation and um, and even uh, support in certain circles of slavery or of racial segregation or of uh, of other moral ills that we not only did we participate in, but we defended. And I want to, I, I don't want to minimize those or just say, ah, well, that was a time or that was the way we understood things at the time. That to me is a big warning of what is possible if we're not careful as a, as a people of faith. Okay. In fact, I think that kind of gets us into that last thing that the last part of what Cole, uh, Lagarde was bringing up to us was this conversation about whether the church follows, um, blindly follows the the culture, and whether that's something that's happening now. I again, I, I I will point out, I don't think there was a time where the church was doing better at it than it is now. I think it's been bad. Look, the reason that our fellowship. The Restoration Movement, the Churches of Christ. We you know we had this hermeneutic of, um, come, let us reason together. Right? If we just used command, inference, and example, if we understood every passage as either a command of God, or God's will as either command of God, um, an example of God's will, or an inference of God's will from Scripture, we would know what is right and wrong. And all you and I have to do is just get out of the way, get our traditions out of the way. And, and, and come to an objective understanding of God's truth. And if we would just do that, we would, be, uh, we would have a pure understanding of Scripture, and we could be only Christians rather than, um, rather than some denominational manifestation, right? Well, um, that is highly informed by rationalism. 
by European rationalism. It's couched deeply within that context of, of Europe, specifically Scottish rationalism. Mm-hmm. It is full on rational that believes that we can come up with a system for everything, mm-hmm. right? And so it is a reflection of a worldview. It's not, I don't mean to, uh, to dismiss it as a reflection of rational worldview, but it's also not fair to say it was the right one. I don't think Rogard's making that argument. He's actually making the argument it didn't work out, but it's not the right one. It was a reflection of the culture's worldview at the time. And so was, so was, so were allegorical interpretations during the Middle Ages, a reflection of the hermeneutic of the time. And so are interpretations of scripture now, reflections of the worldviews and um, hermeneutical drivers of our time. It always is this way. It always has been this way. That the early Christians in the first three centuries understood hermeneutics and, and interpretation through the lens of oppression because they were oppressed. And that's how you understood the gospel is in the context of that oppression. Anyway, I'm rambling. Yeah, I don't know where to go from here. I'm saying that Christianity has always been influenced by culture. It's not all. It's not that we were good at it one time, or we were we were in our oh, high right, point right. at one time and in a low point now. That that you I that you see what's coming as a dark dark day doesn't necessarily mean that what we did before was uh, in any way separate from culture. I think culture has been influencing what we've done for millennia. Now, I will say this: it's a shame. And I think he has a great argument to make in terms of um, the imperative that the church drive culture or sh- the church should drive culture in persuasive ways in, um, in that we w- if we lived our lives so authentically by the gospel that it would be uh, counter that it would be countercultural that it would be revolutionary in the, in the lives of the people around us. I would like to be a part of that community. The countercultural church, the revolutionary church, that church gets persecuted. It gets hung on a cross. But I would like to be a part of that, that faith that uh, starts by asking what is God's will and not by what our preferences are or what our wishes are. I mean, I think you've made this, this argument that, that the church seems to be influenced by cultural mores. Not the same ones Lagarde complains about, but what what are the ones that bother you? Well, I I'm reminded of a sermon series I heard in the '90s by my friend Bruce McClarty, who is now the president of Harding University. Bruce had a great sermon series that he might be surprised that I still remember, but his point was, um, our oftentimes we see our goal as Christians to remain at arm's length from culture mainstream culture but then as mainstream culture moves we move with it always maintaining an arm's length rather than maintaining a position no matter how far culture goes oh that's a very interesting metaphor yeah a lot of sense so even if it goes a long way to a horrible place we feel as long as we're an arm's length away we're fine instead of trying to uh, ascertain and discern what appropriate behavior and thoughts that are, that is Christ-like um, yeah. should be for our lives. Well, one thing that I, we were we were talking earlier before we started was about <clears throat> how politics, not just voting at the polls, politics, but political culture um, has influenced Christianity. And, and one of the ways I see that, 
Lagarde said some things about homosexual behavior. Mm-hmm. And what I have seen that really distresses me, there are people who believe that homosexual behavior for Christians is immoral and that it displeases God. And they did not arrive at those positions flippantly or whimsically. They, they arrived at those conclusions in an excruciatingly difficult attempt to abide by Scripture. And so often, Christians react, uh, other Christians react in the same way that secular culture reacts toward people who believe that, which yeah. is you hate gay people right. and you want no life for them. Right. And that is not what Christians who have arrived at those positions believe in my circles. Not all of them. Not all of them. Lagarde That's right. Didn't, yeah, people, people like this really believe it's our responsibility to love, and loving means things. That's right. And, and how we treat others on this planet in a sexual way, they find to be extremely important. Yes. And they want it to be uh, godly both to God and to other people involved, and they've given tremendous amount of thought to this. Um, I'm thinking of people I know. Yeah. And they don't deserve to be pointed at and said, especially by other believers, right. you hate gay people because you believe that, because that's not what they're saying. Uh, man, that's really that's put very, very well. I don't. It's bad enough that people get turned into their points of, their points of view get turned into caricatures anyway. But when you do that, you know, brother to brother or sister to sister, that's really not cool. We have to understand that so many times people are working out their salvation with fear and trembling, and they're trying to understand. And I don't mean that in a way that, well, I disagree with Cole, uh, with, uh, Cole or I disagree with Lagarde. Bless their poor little pointed heads. I'm going to love them anyway. I mean that we um, we grab onto the feet of Christ with all of our strength and and have compassion for one another as the other one is holding on and uh, and understand that we're, we're, we're trying to figure this out. I'll give you another example that's perhaps even more pervasive, and that is the stance on women's roles in church. Yeah. The, I know people who are, the label is complementarians. Mm-hmm. Um, men have certain roles, women have certain spiritual roles, and they are in, in most ways separate, though they're combined in some other ways. And these folks, by a lot of my other friends, are immediately characterized as people who are holding on to early They're either misogynist or marginalized, right? That they're, if they're yes. women, they've, they've, they've uh, given in to their marginalization. If they're men, they're misogynist. That's right. Yeah. And it corresponds, they would say, to early and mid-20th century social pressures right. of, I want my wife to be at home, cooking my meals that it necessarily means that. And the complementarians I know with whom I've had deep discussions about how they feel about women's roles in church, they don't believe that at all, that I can ascertain. They are trying as best as they can to understand the mythical nature of being male and female entities in the universe. And they've read tons, more than I have read about it, and they have arrived at positions that may be different from yours, mine, or anyone else's. But they are not arriving there in ways that deserve derision from the rest of us. Mm. I've been working through something, and I'm not sure exactly where it's going to go. But these these last 
two conversations have resonated against it. Um, it's the idea that oftentimes we individualize God's love. God loves me so much, right? He loves me. It happens in our hymnals. If you look at the way our hymnals have evolved over time, that uh, the, the hymns tend to focus upon the individual experience of God. And as a Kierkegaardian, I, I can understand why, but um, I'm starting to really wrestle with this concept of agape for the world, that God so loved the world, although that's in the in that passage is phileo, but that God has so much love for the world. Uh, that's that is not an individual. I mean, there are the authors. I'm not going to name them by name. Who say something like, you know, if I were the only one on earth, God would have died for me. Fine, but you weren't. <laughs> and the world is a pretty big place. You know, when we as Christians decide that not just individuals who we, who we love or who we commune with or who are part of our culture, but that all people are the objects of our agape, that the entire world is the object of our agape, um, that person starts to try and figure out how to love not just the person next to them and, you know, the person next to me may need a shoulder rub, and that's a great way to love that person, but how do I love the world? And this is what I will say about many of my uh, conservative friends is that I do believe they love the world. And that is honorable. Mm -hmm. It's not, that's not an excuse. That is the thing. And that's how I can get behind a conversation with somebody that loves the world and is trying to do that in ways that I don't always understand or agree with. And I don't disagree because I decided to be influenced by culture. I disagree because um, I'm, I'm interpreting it differently and uh, I might be wrong, very possible, but I also love the world. And trying to figure out what that means, uh, it's gonna take, it's gonna take fear and trembling. It's gonna also require a, um, a generational approach to interpretation. And I think if there's anything, any warning I would make to progressives, it would be to be very, very careful about jettisoning historical interpretation. 2,000 years of church fathers. <laughs> As our and, friend Dan yeah, would say, yeah. That's right. You, uh, you, might, you might decide to jettison it, but that better come at a significant cost because um, we... We are figuring this out on a millennial scale, not not just whatever genius mo revelation you think you had, you know, when you were posting on Facebook. I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what shall we say uh, in in response to Lagarde's? I think he did a, a very whole. fine job of holding uh, our feet to the fire. Um, I mean, I I don't necessarily expect to have my mind changed on things. I expect to be forced to think about them clearly. Yes. And that's what happened. Uh, and sometimes my mind has changed because I had to look at them clearly. And I mean, that's the same thing as, you know, our conversations. Right. You forced me to look at stuff clearly and see, and sometimes I see the paradox in my own point of view. And um, my out is, like I said, I'm a Kierkegaardian, you're not. So I'm comfortable with my paradoxes whenever they happen. I can just shrug my shoulders and say, yeah, that's interesting. That's right. Thank you.